0: Handily printed on the bottom of page 3 of your service sheet, Acts 2, verses 12 to 21, page 1093 in the Bibles in the pews there. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 12. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, no. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Will be saved.
1: Thank you, Steve. Um, it's m- me that prepares the evening service order, and I noticed to my horror that we didn't have any notices. So I thought I would sneak them in before the sermon. Um, Thank you to Chloe for the prayers and starting them so beautifully with Thanksgiving. Today is what we're calling a Thanksgiving Sunday, uh, a sort of opportunity in the summer to take stock and to thank God for his blessings to us, which will give some an opportunity to, to give financially if you want to do that, but I hope give all of us a chance just to uh, come with thanksgiving to God as, as Chloe led us in the prayers to do so. Um, I know that some of you will have done contributions by way of video or email to Alison in the office, and because we had an open air service this morning and couldn't show them on video, we're going to sort of hold that over till next week, which probably means you could sneak something in if you intended to and haven't. Okay, Thanksgiving. The other stuff to mention this week is the PCC meet on Tuesday, and there is a church prayer meeting for the month of July on Wednesday, our monthly, uh, no home groups this week, um, prayer meeting will be on the Wednesday evening, usually it's the first Wednesday of the month and that we've managed to successfully accomplish this coming month or we we have in our plans at any rate, so prayer meeting on Wednesday, spread the word, uh, bring a friend, come and pray with us on Wednesday evening at 8 o'clock in the north building. I think... Oh, no, it's not it. Look, I have something very flashy here. This is... Josh and Rachel are not allowed to to listen. This is a a book in which you can inscribe words of thanks and gratitude to to Josh and Rachel um, to mark their departure from us. We think last Sunday, uh, Lord willing, will be the 24th of July... So a lot of people took the opportunity at the the picnic this morning to write some words in there. You can do so now and Alison will be pleased because she has to sort of chase us to make sure we write in that book. It's here, it's nice um, and it's a lovely way of just saying uh, some words of appreciation to these two lovely folk. Please take the opportunity to do so. Now, Acts chapter 2. Um, is what we were reading. You've got it on the service sheet in front of you. This is slightly um, self-indulgent of of me, if I can do a bit of testimony. I remember, with great gratitude to God, a series of talks I listened to on Acts chapter 2, particularly looking at Peter's sermon, which we will get to this week and then continue for the next couple of weeks uh, in, in Acts chapter 2. I remember hearing some really eye-opening thing talks on, on that bit of the Bible. When I was a young Christian, the value of Acts 2 is that it's sort of the birthday of the church, people will often call it, and this sermon has some core truths about what got the Christian movement going. And to me as a young Christian, getting going myself, and thinking about serving the Lord with my life in whatever way that happened, as I listened to those talks and beyond, it was, it was very formative. So I come back to it occasionally as a passage that's meant a lot to me, and I was a bit fed up because I'm only preaching on this sermon of the series. I've shared it out with other people. Um, but there you go, that's fine. It's great to encourage other people to look at, at this key, one of the key early test i mean it's lovely in acts to have so many of the early church's sermons written down for us so we know that we've got real original christianity in our veins and so that's why we're in acts chapter two in this season post pentecost of the church's calendar Um, let me pray and then we'll look um at those verses together We thank you, Father, for the way the Bible has been written down uh, so that we can know what you want to say to us. We thank you for those that have uh, translated it and preserved it down the years so that we have it open in front of us this evening. And we pray that just as you spoke these words when they were first uttered, you'd speak afresh to us today. Help us to... Love your word and to love you, the one who speaks that word to us. And we pray that you'd open our ears, therefore, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what's a bit of a tragedy um, when somebody is out of sync with important events that are going on, um, unaware of what's going on around them? And I was brought up on a book. Uh, in my youth called Stephen Pyle's Book of Heroic Failures that had a a story about one notable example of that. This is a guy called Hiru Onoda, who was somebody who didn't have a proper sense of where he stood in the passage of time. He was a Japanese soldier in World War II. In July 1945, so if you know your World War II history near the end of the Second World War. July 1945, he was sent to the Philippine island of Lubang. And his task was to gather information behind enemy lines. He was specifically instructed not to surrender. He was just to gather information and to await further orders. Now, he didn't know this, but within a month, Japan had surrendered... Nobody told Hiru Onoda, so he carried on gathering information, firing the occasional shot up into the air for the emperor, I guess, and he did so for nearly 30 years until he was found in 1974. Imagine that, 30 years, as if the critical events that would have made all the difference to him hadn't happened. But it's possible for us to fall into a similar trap when it comes to the events of the Christian faith, which we've boldly talked about in our creed tonight, to live as if those great events hadn't happened. We're familiar with things like Coca-Cola and computers. They seem much more real to us than Christ and his death and resurrection and ascension and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if we if think sort of thought about it and put it into words, we might wonder at times how events that happened such a long time ago, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, could really be pivotal and important for us. But I think that Acts chapter 2, the reason we're having this series, is that the events you have here, the day of Pentecost, and what that meant for the new song that we've been singing ever since then. Uh, Acts 2 is making that sort of claim, that it's pivotal. It's a moment of history, a moment in, in the history of our world that, that can't be repeated and can't be underestimated. It's the start of a new era. So Pentecost probably doesn't get much of a mention in any of the secular histories of the world, but If you go through Acts chapter 2, bit by bit, chunk by chunk, as we are week by week in the series in the evening services, it seems to me clear that it is one of the world's epoch-making events. It's one of the hinges of history we're going to see in this little section that we're looking at tonight. And therefore, necessarily, it affects every one of us here. So my mention of Hiru Anoda is just to encourage us not to live as if key pivotal events haven't happened, which it's easily possible for us to do. Now, Edward got us started last week on the bit that we slightly bypassed in our reading. I don't know if you've got the reading in front of you, amazed and perplexed. They are one another, what does this mean? What does what mean? while well, they were speaking in foreign languages, or being heard at least in foreign languages, all the people who were gathered in, in Jerusalem were, were hearing the wonders of God declared to them in uh, their own tongues, and it was amazing for them. If I had to recap on last week, um, which it... I just commend you if you want to get it on, on, the, on the website and have a listen in. If I had to summarize last week, the, the main message, it seems to me, is that God gives the Spirit to all Christians so that all Christians can bear witness to the wonders of God. We had a, an interesting debate, Edward and I, uh, after the sermon, because he spoke specifically about the apostles. And I think he was absolutely right to say, as far as we can tell, In the section we've got today, Peter and the 11 were in view in some of what's going on in Acts chapter 2. Maybe they were the people that spoke in foreign languages or were heard to speak in foreign languages, specifically those 12. There were 120 Christians by this stage. So there's a bit of a debate going on in my mind as to whether it was all 120 that received the Spirit, so the tongues of fire landed on their heads, as it were, and they all spoke up, or if it was um, just the apostles. I don't know if it's particularly important. I went and uh, consulted my commentary by John Stott to see if he had any light to shed on it. This is what he said. Pentecost brought to the apostles the equipment they needed for their special role. Christ had appointed them to be his primary and authoritative witnesses and had promised them the reminding and teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost was the fulfillment of that promise. It was the inauguration of the new era of the Spirit. Although his coming was a unique and unrepeatable historical event, all the people of God can now always and everywhere benefit from his ministry. Although he equipped the apostles to be the primary witnesses, he also equips us to be secondary witnesses. Although the heat, ah, sorry, although the inspiration of the spirit was given to the apostles alone, the fullness of the spirit is for us all. And so there's a direction of travel in this chapter that has all of God's people promised the spirit by the end of the chapter. So it was an interesting tussle for me. I want to have my cake and eat it. I said, this, the apostles specifically were given the spirit in that first instance. but God gives the spirit to all Christians that all may be message bearers. And it seems to me that a similar thing is going on in our section today. Well, that's no great surprise, is it? But I hope just at the outset, with that brief recap of the tongues of fire coming to rest on individual heads as appointed to all Christians having the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit in them, I hope that all of us, if you're a Christian, you'll, you'll join me in thanking God for the privilege we have. It's not just for spiritual superheroes, as you might have thought in the Old Testament, where the Spirit came on individuals. God's Spirit indwells each and every one of us, if we belong to Jesus Christ. So my recap is, God gives the Spirit to all Christians, so that all Christians can tell the world about Jesus. Which is, of course, the point of the tongues or languages that they spoke in on that first day of Pentecost. Couldn't really have been clearer. Um, There were a bunch of Galileans without a language GCSE between them all, speaking fluent Parthian, Pontic, and Pamphylian, all those amazing names that uh, people struggle with in, in the readings. All the foreigners hear them declaring the wonders of God in their own language. And that is a new thing. From the Tower of Babel onwards, languages have been an issue, hadn't it? Remember the story of the Tower of Babel? The human race attempted to build a huge tower up to heaven, and God, in judgment, scattered all the people. But remember how he did it? He did it by introducing different languages so that they couldn't communicate with each other. And here, that's beginning to be reversed, isn't it? The scattering is over. God, by his Spirit, begins to gather people again through giving all the Christians who'd received the Spirit this supernatural ability to speak in the languages of their hearers so they in turn could become Christians. That's what struck everybody at Pentecost and makes sense of the question they were asking. What does this mean? We have that description in verse 11, uh, which we had last week. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. God wants everybody to know about his love through ordinary people speaking to them in a language they can understand. And he communicates with them in their own language. Now, that is all by way of teeing up the long quotation from Joel that Peter gives to answer this question. I think the idea of communication is what he's emphasizing in our verses today. Let me uh, read a bit from verse 16 onwards. He dismisses the charge that they're drunk. It's far too early in the day for that. And in verse 16, we have the explanation of what's happening. No, he says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you see what the events we thought about last week are all about? It's clear from there, isn't it? God is pouring out his spirit on all Christian people so they can all prophesy or speak God's message to others. Now, I ought to go into a quick lay-by here and say that I think that that is what the word prophecy means here. These verses are sometimes quoted to say, everybody in this age should be having dreams and visions today. Um, That that's how God is eager to communicate today. And it's not my business to tell God how he can or cannot communicate. Of course, God is free. He is sovereign. If he chooses to give people dreams and visions, he's he's well able to do so. I think there's plenty of evidence sometimes, I think the speaker last week said this, that that, that sometimes when the gospel breaks new ground, this happens, uh, that people do have dreams and visions. But... To me, Peter cannot mean that dreams and visions literally are how Joel's prophecy was being fulfilled for one fairly simple reason, and that is that nobody at Pentecost reported having dreams and visions. So, what we've had is the wonders of God being declared in another language. That's pretty amazing but there's been no mention of the reason I'm doing this is because I had a dream or a vision or God has been speaking to me in the middle of the night and I want to tell you that particularly. That's not why Peter made the link back to Joel's prophecy. Nobody reported having dreams and visions. There were no dreams and visions for Peter to make that the link with Joel's prophecy. So we need to ask, why did he think of Joel's prophecy as a result of what had happened there. Well, the reason he thought of Joel's words from Joel chapter 2, the prophet in the Old Testament, I think is simple enough. It is that suddenly on the day of Pentecost, all God's people are proclaiming God's message, not just a select few. Um, and you need to understand what prophecy, dreams, and vision dreams and visions means. It's really standard Old Testament language for God revealing Himself. Joel used that language because that's the way Old Testament believers always talk about God speaking. But his point, the significant point, is that in the last days everybody would be a prophet. Everybody would be getting a word from God via dreams and visions. Everybody would declare God's message, male and female Rich and poor, young and old. And that had happened on the day of Pentecost. So there were not there wasn't just one preacher, Peter there. There were multiple preachers, because they had been given the wonders of God to declare to others. God gives his spirit to all Christians, so all Christians can tell the world about Jesus. And the languages God gave were a massive visual aid to tell us that God wants his message to go to the ends of the earth through ordinary people without any extra obstacles getting in the way. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but in church, we have a great knack of speaking a different language to normal people. We have a sort of religious language, a religious subculture that no one else understands. I found an example which made its way into a church notice sheet. We don't have a church notice sheet anymore. It wasn't all saints. But the church notice sheet as an institution is a good example of how bad we are at communicating in Christian circles. This is the one I read in a church notice sheet. This afternoon it said there will be a meeting in the south and north ends of the church. Children will be baptized at both ends. Which, um, is an interesting thought. And we probably understand that, notice, and all sorts of other things that are in crypto-Christian talk. But our in-house talk just sounds slightly ridiculous to most people. We've got to communicate with a generation for whom the concept of Jesus dying for our sins is a bit like speaking double Dutch. That's sort of not language they normally use. But instead of expecting everyone else to overcome all the barriers and to accommodate themselves to us, what God wants, God's Spirit wants to help us accommodate ourselves to others and declare the language of, declare in a language that people can understand, the wonders of God. I wonder if you're concerned, as the Spirit of God is, to communicate the wonders of God clearly to others. There used to be an advert when I was younger, for cornflakes. And it tried to show a very average family in a very normal breakfast scene, tucking into their cornflakes together. And the catchy logo was this. People like you like Kellogg's cornflakes. And something like that, if I can use it as an illustration, that is God's strategy, to use ordinary Christians because they're best placed to reach other ordinary people. So he wants to use you and me to reach other people like you and me, so that they're thinking people like me are followers of Jesus. And we've therefore got to make the most of any common ground that we share with people. So I want to, on the strength of God's desire to get the word out, that is evidenced at Pentecost to challenge myself and to challenge you practically as to whether you've given thought to how you can tell other people simply what wonderful things God has done for you. Certainly worth asking ourselves, is that actually what people hear when we talk about what we Christians believe? The wonders of God is a great phrase to use as a test against how we speak to other people. In the morning services, we've been looking recently at John's Gospel and the signs that Jesus did. And we've had to remind ourselves about an important theological concept that runs through uh, the New Testament, or rather a special theological term which we all ought to know and use frequently. The theological word I'm meaning is the word wow, because as Jesus does amazing things that reaction of amazement to God at work should, should lead to that simple amazement. We should all have a sense of wonder at what God did in the Lord Jesus Christ and we should have a sense of wonder at what God has done for us. And that should communicate clearly to others around us. It should be obvious to them. So maybe we need to recapture that to start with. Am I able to communicate the wonders of God in what I've experienced in the gospel to others? A couple of practical steps. I wonder if you can pray that you will be convinced how wonderful God is. Can you pray that way for yourself? And therefore, I mean, that's the first step to communicating it, isn't it? That we're convinced of how wonderful he is ourselves so that we can... Pass that wonder on to others. What he's done for you and what he's done for others is amazing. So pray. Let's pray that we would be convinced that way ourselves. And then, another point, prepare. By which I mean that every one of us should have an up-to-date testimony to what God has done for them and to what God is doing in them. And that is something I think surely you can prepare, isn't it? So that if somebody asks you why you're a Christian today, you've got an answer ready in terms they could understand. But here's the question. Are you declaring the wonders of God? Pentecost is saying that God gives his spirit on all flesh. Men and women, young and old, don't write yourself out of the script by reason of age. All of us, he wants to declare the wonders to us so that we can declare them to others. Now, just a a conclusion, and we're finished. We began with old Hiru Onoda and um, the tragedy of living our lives as if something pivotal hasn't happened. Pentecost is hugely important. it's a hinge of history. And I just want to convince you of that and that that is exactly Peter's point here. Just look what he says about the course of history in verse 17 to start with. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. So this amazing event where God gives all Christians his spirit so all Christians can tell the world about Jesus. He's saying shows that we're in the last days. It's a key theological phrase. Actually, we've been in the last days now. This means for nearly 2,000 years. But that was the point where a decisive corner was turned. In Jesus Christ, the end of the world has come, has come already. The last days are underway. Why? Well, because once Jesus Christ died and rose and ascended and sent the Spirit, In one sense, you could say this, nothing more remains to be done before his return. We're in the last days. But now look at the other reference in these words that we've had today. The other reference to the course of history in his words. This time it's in verse 20, if you scan down to there. The sun will be turned to darkness. And the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. So the clock is ticking, and the last days, plural, will one day become the last day. Singular, when Jesus returns. The last days are full of wonder, but the last day is even more great, and glorious and that sort of cosmic disturbance blood and fire and billows of smoke sun turned to darkness, moon to blood those are wonders, aren't they? even more wonderful in some ways than the wonders that uh, they'd experienced on the day of Pentecost more wonders and with that awesome finality of that last day in our mind then When the day of judgment comes, surely we should all thank God for the promise of verse 21. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because Jesus has died, we can look forward to that last day, even though it's cosmic disturbance on a huge scale when Jesus returns to judge the world. We can look forward to that day whenever it should come with confidence So long as we've done what verse 21 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If we've called on the name of the Lord, we'll be safe on that day. I told you about Hiru Onoda. It was only in 1974 that he finally caught up with world history. 30 years on, he stumbled on a Japanese tourist, I think, on Lubang, who told him that the war had ended 30 years earlier. I want all of us to have a sense of the significance of our place in the place of his, in the course of history. Because of Jesus Christ, a decisive date has been passed in the dealings of God with the human race. And it means that potentially for everyone, the war is over. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's no need for anyone any longer to be God's enemy. But, Only people who take action in the last days will be ready for the last day. And God has given us his spirit, if we're Christian, precisely so we can help people be ready. And it's a tragedy, therefore, if we lose a sense of the significance of our place in the passage of time post-Pentecost, because we're less well-equipped to encourage people to to be ready for that last day. If you're not a Christian yet, then verse 21 says, now is the time to call on the name of the Lord, to call on Jesus to rescue you before it's too late. And if you are a Christian, now is the time for us to warn and plead with others before it is too late. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you long for people to know the wonder of forgiveness and the wonder of your work in our lives. You're committed to making that known. We thank you for those that have made it known to us in the past. We pray you'd help each of us to live our lives in the light of these great events of Jesus coming and uh, dying for us and rising again and ascending and sending the Spirit. Make the wonder of them clear to us again so that we can uh, pass those amazing events on to others. We pray that we would call on your name and we pray that they would too. And therefore for the outward expansion of the gospel to be happening through us we pray that people would hear your wonders in a language they can understand and respond to you in
0: jesus name amen